we have a recording, we have a light, and we have time ticking. We are good to go. Welcome to Abnormal Psychology, Psych 213. Today's topic is Chapter 12 in our textbook. It is Neurodevelopmental and Disruptive Disorders. So Neurodevelopmental and Disruptive Disorders. In the past, this probably would have been under the category of Childhood Disorders, just to let you know. But remember in DSM-5, we got rid of a separate category for childhood disorders and we integrated them in with everything else. All right, so that's what you see here, okay? Um, so let's go ahead and take a look. We're gonna make our way through about 38 slides. That's pushing it for today, but I'm thinking if we get a jump on it, we should be okay, all right? So neurodevelopmental disorders and disruptive disorders, these disorders described in this chapter include dysfunctions that first appear in childhood. That's why we used to call them childhood disorders. Reflecting issues of both physical and psychological maturation. So it seems to involve some kind of maturation, if you will. So you know, just kind of keep that in the back of your mind. For some of these disorders, the disturbance is considered to be one of the developmental processes itself. For others, the problems involve a deficiency. So a lacking, if you will, of self-control of emotions and behaviors. So we'll take a look as we go through, all right? A lot of these are gonna involve some kind of physiological kind of problem too. That's, a, that's again, a, a basis underneath that we're thinking about. In the dsm 4 these conditions were considered within this larger category um, called disorders of infancy, childhood, and adolescence. Again, remember in dsm 5 we revised all that and we moved a lot of those disorders into other areas, so it didn't make sense to just have this category still be called childhood infancy or, or adolescent disorders. That's why they changed the name to neurodevelopmental and disruptive disorders. Um, the two new classifications were added. Neurodevelopmental disorders span childhood and adolescence. And then this disruptive disorder really is just kind of a, a shortened version of this bigger category, which is disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder. So we'll talk about those as we make our way through. And this is created by merging impulse control dysfunctions with disruptive conditions of childhood. So it's gonna cause some kind of problem in the individual, okay? And probably impact others. It's a way to think about this. So here are our categories. Here's our first chart we'll take a look at, right? You can see the first one is intellectual disability, right? So we. We actually, the official name is Intellectual Developmental Disorder, but we call it Intellectual Disability. Um, if you recall, this is the, the chapter that used, or this is the, the diagnosis that used to be called mental retardation. But in 2013, when the DSM came out, they got rid of the term mental, or mental retardation, right, because um, it, there's such connotation with the word retardation. It's been bastardized so many times. It's got such a negative connotation, they just felt that it wasn't appropriate anymore. In fact, the American Association for the Mentally Retarded changed their name following the change of the DSM-5, right? So they are no longer the American Association for the Mentally Retarded. Um, and again, a lot of that has to do with current co you know, social perception on the terminology. So that's what we see. Intellectual disability are deficits, or deficits in intellectual and adaptive functioning. So it's not just low IQ. 
has to be low IQ in addition to problems with functioning. And we'll talk about that as we go through. The onset is during the developmental period, more common in males. The next disorder we can talk about, it's more of a, a general disorder, so we won't spend as much time on these next three, but they're in here. Language disorder, which is a difficulty in language use and acquisition. The onset is early in the developmental period, and it's really unclear whether, you know, what the gender difference is between the next three, this one and the next two. The third one is speech sound disorder. So there's difficulties in speech or sound production. Well, maybe you have to go to speech classes when you were in you know, childhood classes. You just couldn't quite get your, your S's or your TH's or whatever it is. So again, there's that kind of discrepancy in being able to kind of sound or speech hear it. Again, onset is early in the developmental period. And then the, the last one you see on this chart is childhood onset fluency disorder. And that's just another way of saying stuttering. So fluency is how you know, smoothly you speak. Stuttering, of course, is this hesitation, if you will, in speech. Um, it's a disturbance in fluency and time patterning of speech. Onset is, again, early in the developmental period. So that's why these are called neurodevelopmental. There's this underlying belief that there's a neurological reason for the problem. Something, right? Maybe a wiring issue in the brain or, or whatever we might want to talk about. All right, some of the other disorders, here's our second chart with some more on it, right? We have social pragmatic communication disorder. So deficits in social communication, but everything else seems to be just fine. Early onset, again, in the developmental period, this one also unclear any sex ratio or gender difference. Autism spectrum disorder. Now this is a, a category, right? We used to have uh, Asperger's disorder, there was autism disorder, um, there were a couple other ones that were also in there, and we'll talk about them as we get a little further into the diagnosis. What we did is we now include them all together, and we call them autism spectrum disorders. Um, and what they en encompass, what the general key symptoms are, are deficits in social communication and interaction and restricted activities. Because if it's just social communication issues, then this social pragmatic communication disorder is a better explanation. So this is more than just communication disorders. This has to do with those restricted activities, stereotyped interests, those kind of things. Onset is early in the developmental period, tends to be more common in males than females. We see attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD right? Multiple symptoms of inattention or and, could be either or or and, hyperactivity. Notice it says several symptoms prior to age 12. So really they used to say the onset was diagnosable about age 5 to 7. Now they're saying as long as you have some of the symptoms before age 12, that's what we're looking for. And again, more common in males. And notice, one of the things I want you to notice is ADD isn't on here, and you might go, well, where's ADD? Attention Deficit Disorder, right? Because ADHD and ADD seem to go together. Well, yeah, guess what? They are, they do go together. They're one and the same. ADHD, inattentive type, or ADHD, hyperactive type. They're actually, or you can have ADHD combined and you get both. 
There really isn't a disorder ADD. Now, back in the 90s, a lot of people threw that term around, but it's really not a diagnosis. Really, ADD is a subcategory and a shortened abbreviation for ADHD. So I just want to throw that out there to you to think about, right? We can talk more about it as we go through. And then the final one you see up here is specific learning difficulties or specific learning disorders. So again, maybe a problem with math with math or maybe a problem with writing, right? Maybe dyslexia. So again, these would be specific learning disorders that would fall in this subcategory, you know, as a subcategory under this heading. And so it's difficulties in learning and using academic skills. Age or duration of requirement is six months, right? So again, it needs to be going on not just a short time period, but a longer time period and more common among males. So a lot of these you notice are more common among males or we're not sure. So it's kind of interesting when you think about it. Here's the last three. Again, you can see there's a lot of categories here. That's why this PowerPoint's so long. And I think that a lot of the categories make sense. So if we don't get through everything, I think it's still pretty self-explanatory. And what I'll try to do, if we don't get to everything, I'll try to go make a, a secondary recording to add to this. I'm not sure how I'll do that, but I'll figure out a way. Might have to do it tonight, record it at home, and then we'll just see how it goes. So here are the last three we see on this chart, right? Developmental coordination disorder. So deficits in motor skills, development, maybe clumsiness, they don't seem to really master that balance. Something seems a little off, right? So the onset is early in the developmental period, again, more common in males. And then stereotypic movement disorder. So this is kind of a separate category. This may be, you may see stereotypic movement as part of an autism spectrum, but when it's just the disorder and it doesn't have the communication stuff, then it does have its own little subcategory. And it's repetitive, purposeless behavior. Yes? So I have a question for developmental coordination disorder. Right. Is this, is like the general idea with this kind of stuff is similar to what we learned earlier about where it can't be explained by another medical reason? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or maybe there's a medical reason that's exacerbating it, but it's still a functional problem that's causing difficulty in that person's life. So like if someone had something wrong with their like tympanic ear that causing them like vertigo, it right. wouldn't go under this? Probably not unless it was a chronic problem um, or maybe until like surgery that would correct the issue and then we might say that it's gone. But, but until we do that, probably the first diagnosis is going to be that it's medically right. And again, remember neurodevelopmental disorders just by their category, neurodevelopmental some belief that something neurological is creating this difficulty. So there could be a physical cause, you're still suffering from it, and it's still causing you social, occupational, or academic problems. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. yeah. Again, you know, sleep disorders are in the DSM. Eating disorders are in the DSM. And you might go, well, those are more physical disorders. Yeah, they might be, but they have a mental impact. That's why this one's on there. All right, um, stereotypic movement disorder, as I said, um, repetitive purposeless behavior, onset early in the developmental period, unsure how it's related to male or female. Again, we just don't have that information. And then the final um, disorder that you see listed up here is what's called tick disorder. 
So tic disorder is again, rapid recurrent motor movements or vocalizations. And you know what? Stereotypic movement disorder has a little feel about tickness about it, doesn't it? Purposeless behavior that seems to be stereotypic, repetitive. So it kind of sounds like a tick, but maybe it's more controlled. So it's kind of, it's a subcategory. Um, tick disorders tend to have a duration of at least a year. So again, if it's a transient situation, we might not necessarily call it a tick disorder, right? And the onset needs to be before the age of 18 for it to be cause a tick disorder. And again, what do we see? More common among males. So a lot of the things we're gonna talk about today more common among males, all right? Now, notice down here at the bottom, Rett's disorder, a rare disorder that affects primarily females. What originally was thought is that Rett's disorder, Rett's, R-E-T-T, Rett's disorder never affected males. It used to be thought that it was a female-only disorder. It was part of this autism category or spectrum disorder. Now what we know, and believe it or not, because of, I believe, John Travolta, John Travolta's son suffered from Rett's disorder, which of course caused us to go, wait, I didn't think that males could have that. Well, yes, they can. It's rare, right? Affecting primarily females was removed from the DSM-5. Again, it was part of this autism spectrum, you know, kind of its own subcategory, very specific, but because it's so rare, we've kind of removed it out. Now it can fall in as kind of a, a specifier uh, for some of the neurological disorders neurodevelopmental disorders, it can still fall in there, but it by itself seems to have disappeared. So just letting you know. So intellectual disability, let's talk about this. Again, diagnosed when there's evidence that intellectual abilities are significantly below average, but it's more than that. It's more than just a low IQ score. It has to also include these adaptive skills that also are impaired. That, infer, that interfere with the person's ability to function, I hate this word, but normally within society. Hate that word, but I think that you get the connotation of where I'm coming from with that, all right? Notice it says IQ scores must be among the lowest. The 2.5% of the population, only 2.5% of the world's population has an IQ score below 70. So the first cutoff is, is your IQ score kind of below 70? Just a general overview of IQ, between one or between 90 up to 110 is considered average with 100 being in the middle. So 90 to 110 average. 80 to 90, below average. 70 to 80, borderline intellectual functioning. And below 70, intellectual disability. So just to give you an idea, and when we take a look on a bell-shaped curve, that's less than 2.5% of the entire population. So again, this is rare conditions, all right? Notice that the level of adaptive functioning is assessed across three domains. So conceptual, academic, social, and practical. Practical can be like, in case of an emergency, does this person know who to call? Do they have the ability to think under crisis to dial 911 and give an accurate description of where they live and where the emergency's at? 
Again, that's kind of an adaptive skill. We take that for granted. We go, well, yeah, eight-year-olds call 911. Yeah, they do. But if someone has an intellectual disability, they might be functioning at a, at a, a lower level than even an eight-year-old, a normal, again, I hate that word normal, but you know what I mean, right? So it's just something to kind of think about, right? There must be adaptive dysfunction in at least one of the three domains that results in a failure to acquire normal milestones of personal independence and social responsibility. So again, this is an intellectual disability that causes the person difficulty in normal functioning, in regular functioning. And the milestones can be in such areas like language or communication, academic abilities, independent care skills. Are they able to feed themselves? Are they able to dress themselves? Are they able to prepare their own food? Money management. Are they able to keep a budget? Do they know what's important to save and what's not when it comes tax time? <clears throat> and some of us might be like, I don't even know what's important to save. My wife always accuses me of saving every single receipt. I'm like, yep, I do. She's like, we don't need the ones from the grocery store. I'm like, you never know. We could need them, right? So I don't throw out anything, and then it comes time to do the taxes, and I have to sort through it all. But I can figure that out. But maybe some don't even know that. They throw away even the stuff that says save for taxes. And then social judgment. Do, are they aware of their surroundings? I've got a cousin who, um, the term we used to use is that she was slow. She probably falls in the mild range of intellectual disability. In other words, she's higher functioning, right? She lives independently on her own. She works. Her money comes in, but she's, she's slow. I mean, I, I hate to say that, but she doesn't get some of the stuff that you and I would get. I bumped into her. I just happened to go back home to visit my, my mom um, a, a while ago, and I'm walking through Walmart, and she saw me and ran up to me, and she goes, you know, you know, Uncle David, Uncle or Cousin David, because we're cousins, right? Cousin David, is that you? And I'm like, oh, wow, it's great to see you. And in the middle of Walmart, right in front of the cashiers, she dumps her, her, like her physical problems or like a, a, you know, all these kind of health issues right there standing in the middle of a crowded Walmart, not getting the social cues that that's probably not the right time or place to do it. Does that kind of make sense? So that's part of that social judgment, the lack of social judgment. I think is what I'm trying to get at, give you an example. Um, intellectual disability can be specified as mild, moderate, severe, or profound, and we used to use those terms with mental retardation too, so they're the same. Notice in the DSM-IV, these specif specifications were determined by IQ scores alone, but now in DSM-V, they're defined in terms of adaptive ability. So it's not just IQ score. It's how well they're adapting. Do they have a profound disability, a profound issue that is keeping them regardless? Because profound used to be an IQ of less than 25. Can I tell you something? Trying to do an IQ test on someone that has an IQ less than 25 is almost impossible. So they were only estimating what the score was anyway. Does that make sense? 
I'm only estimating what your score really is anyway when you get that low. So it's more adaptive functioning. That's more a predictive you know, descriptor of where you're at. Notice it says the incidence of intellectual disorder may be 1% of the population with males diagnosed more often than females. So you go, wait, 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 you said 2.5. Well, yeah, 2.5% of the population has an IQ below 70. But just because you have an IQ below 70 does not necessarily mean you don't have adaptive functions. So when we go to intellectual dis disorder, this intellectual disability disorder, now we're talking even of that 2.5% that's below 70, only about 1% really meets the diagnosis. So about half of that, right, of those under an IQ of 70, about half. So one of the things to think about. Now, here's our little chart, distribution of IQ scores, so you have a little better picture of it. Again, if we go from 100 down to 70, and I didn't go up the upward way, so again, 90 to 110 is normal. I, I, IQ, right? Average IQ, I should say. From 110 to 120, we say is above average. From 120 to 130, we say is superior. And then when we get above 130, we're now talking, you know, in the genius area. And by the way, there's, a, there's an organization called Mensa, right? And Mensa is an organization for extremely intelligent individuals. Now keep in mind, the, the amount of the population above 130 is the same as below 70, about 2.5% of, of the population, right? In order to be in Mensa, you have, a half, you have to have an IQ of at least 140. So now we're talking probably only about 1% of the population as opposed to 2.5. Because as you go further out from the center, the, the amount, you know, in the tail of the curve is smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Yes? Well, we have IQ testing that we can do. Um, usually, you can do estimates online, but again, they're just estimates and I wouldn't necessarily say that I'd base my life on them. So usually they're done in school and they're usually done by a licensed psychologist who comes in and does specific IQ testing. They can cost, last I uh, heard on an estimate price for IQ testing about $300 for one, for one IQ test. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a battery of tests. So for one IQ testing session, about $300 to have it done and then have it read and have the report written. Were those like the they do tend to be patterns like so if your IQ is low like let's say that you're in the average range of IQ in high school our belief is that IQ doesn't change over time it's relatively stable so if I give you an IQ test as a young adult you should be in the average range does that make sense unless something has happened maybe you have a head trauma now maybe the IQ is impacted so usually for adults, we don't do IQ testing unless there's been some kind of event. You know, maybe a car accident with a head trauma. And then we want to assess to see if there's any long-term effects. Does that kind of make sense? Because again, our belief is that it's relatively stable. So here we go, we take a look. Individuals with an IQ of 65 to 75, two standard deviations below the mean, and who show significant impairment in adaptive functioning meet the criteria. So notice that even 70 isn't necessarily that cutoff. It's around 70, but you can have an IQ score of 75 
And because your adaptive abilities were really low, you might still fall in this category of intellectual disability. So it's, again, it's not, IQ score is kind of a rough estimate, but it's not the do all end all. Individuals who score between 70 and 85 might meet the definition for borderline intellectual functioning, and that's what we find. Again, because it's on the border of lower intellectual functioning, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't live a normal, healthy life. It just means maybe you need a little bit more assistance to acquire knowledge. Maybe that's it. It takes you a little longer. But you can still function and do everything else. It just takes you a little longer. All right, mildly disabled individuals make up the majority. In fact, it's estimated as high as 85% of those with intellectual disability fall in the mild category. So a majority are like my cousin. They can work, they can take care of themselves, they can live on their own. She drives, right, to work. Now again, she doesn't, she's not real good with budgets, needs a little bit of assistance there, right? But, but other than that, she survives pretty well on her own. It was kind of interesting, she contacted me. My mom was in a nursing home, my mom's passed now, but my mom was in a nursing home and she said, you know, I'm trying to get a hold of your mom. And, and, you know, I wasn't, I just said, well, did you call the nursing home? Well, yeah, but I don't know who to ask for. And I'm like, well, yes, for mom's name, and then they'll just direct you to the right room. Oh, okay, is that, is that easy? Yeah, it is. It just, just give them a call at the nurse's station. But I'm not family. I said, well, yeah, you're a cousin. They'll, they'll, they'll hand the phone to her. Oh, okay. So again, she, she wasn't sure how to go about it with a little bit of direction. Now she's more prepared to deal with that. But she can function well on her own, just needs a little bit more guidance maybe. Does that make sense? The majority of people fall there. Notice it says their subnormal intellect intelligence becomes apparent during school years. They tend to fall behind their age group, and I'd say that's when you know, my cousin was identified. There's persistence, you know, with persistence, I should say, they can learn skills, you know, roughly comparable to a sixth grade level by their late teens. And I would say she's probably functioning, probably, that's probably a reasonable estimate. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be rude, but it's probably a reasonable estimate, you know? With extended education and assistance, independence can be achieved in several areas, but there's ongoing support that's needed. And she does, she needs support from other family members to help her make sure that everything gets taken care of. You know, did you do your taxes? Did you do this? Did you make sure this is taken care of? So again, just kind of, I don't want to say prodding, but just kind of encouragement, direction, guidance. A moderate intellectual disability, those with moderate intellectual disability represent about 10% of those with intellectual disability. So now, if you considered mild and moderate together as two categories, we're now up to about 95% of those with intellectual disability fall in the mild to moderate category. That's a, that's a huge majority of people, right? They usually learn to talk uh, during preschool years, but later um, they're more slow than others. You know? you know, a little bit later they learn to talk and a little slower. Um, they are likely to, to show impairments in sensory motor development. Their academic abilities are markedly low and their social skills are likely to be limited. 
As adults, they can contribute to their own support, but they usually live in protective environments. In other words, maybe they live in a group home, but maybe they go and they do work, but it's gonna be more, I hate to say it, more the manual labor. Like um, back uh, home where I used to live, they had uh, an organization that would hire those individuals that had mental retardation issues. Again, that's the terminology we used to use. Um, and they would come in and their job was to um, they would put together water bottles for, you know, organizations. So you go and you get a water bottle printed with your logo on the side. Well, these individuals would, uh, would just screw the tops on and put the straw in and put it in a box. That's what they would do. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but here's what I'm going to tell you. When people do work that to them is rewarding and you get a paycheck for that and you go to work like, like a quote unquote normal person, and I hate that term, but I'm using it a lot today, I apologize for that, but you feel more normalized, you feel like you fit in, you feel like everyone else, there's a boost to self-esteem, you function at a higher level. And that's what we see here with moderate folk. Again, they're gonna need to live in an environment that takes care of them a little bit more, like a group home. You know, maybe defend for themselves and go to the grocery store. They need someone to go to the grocery store with them to pick the right things, to budget their money more appropriately. Maybe they're not as independent as my cousin. But they still can function in meaningful ways within society and their own lives. Yeah. Yep. Right, so it's not the same repetitive thing. It's right. I use that water bottle example. That might be what they do one day. Maybe the next one is putting together those lunch pails, yeah. right, or something like that. And you said the heart association, right, or yeah, it's like heart, heart industries. I think it is there in New Oxford. Yeah. yeah. So and again, like you said, they can't drive to work on their own, but the bus can go pick them up and bring them in. And that's what we're talking about, right? Severe intellectual disability. Now we're starting to get smaller and smaller. Notice 3.5% of all those that meet the diagnosis for intellectual disability, only 3.5% fall into the severe category. And let's put this into the big picture perspective. You ready? So of the world's population, this, this group represents about 1% so this is about 3.5% of 1% of the population. Extremely small numbers now. Does that kind of make sense? So just so you know that. People with severe intellectual disability, right, have impaired development that is apparent in infancy or early childhood in the form of poor motor movement, minimal speech, often the presence of physical deformities, they may be wheelchair bound. They may have some physical limitations, right? They can learn to talk in simple words and phrases. They can learn some elementary health and grooming habits. But other than that, they're going to need assistance, right? As adults, they may learn to perform certain routine tasks, but generally require complete supervision and economic support. I can, maybe I can brush my hair and maybe I can brush my teeth if I'm reminded to do so. 
but I'm not going to be able to go and make a, a dinner and a meal and all that. I'm, I'm going to need assistance. Again, 3.5% of 1%. Yes? So um, I'm working at this new job, and it's assisted living. Okay. And, um, so you're working in assisted living. Yeah. Okay. And so someone there has, like, on the severe side of an intellectual disability, and if you don't, like, he has this tick almost. Okay. Okay. And he doesn't like talk a lot, and you have to keep reminding him to do things. But overall, he like does things on his own usually. Mm -hmm. And like, if we remind him, he'll go out and he'll be like just doing things. But when he comes back, we're like, "Hey, did you do this?" And he'll just kind of meander. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that can't function. Is there some physical disabilities that they, that he has maybe too, uh, or just some deformities? Some deformities, right. Right, but again, you can. there's something noticeable. And, and our belief is that maybe something during the prenatal development occurred and the end result is this limitation. So again, uh, you know, and that's something I want to kind of say. We use this term disability still. I have a feeling someday that'll go away too. You know, maybe we should say limitation because that's what it is. It's limitations on functioning. You know, so again, thank you for sharing right so you guys all think in the back of your head if you know someone that kind of fits into some of these categories right the final category is this one profound these individuals make up the smallest group of those with intellectual disability about 1.5 percent again think about that bell-shaped curve the further out you go the smaller and smaller amounts this is 1.5 percent of one percent of the population so extremely small numbers Notice there's extreme deficits in both intellectual and sensory motor functions that are apparent in life. They have severe physical deformities. They may be wheelchair bound. They may need assistance even feeding themselves. Usually these people require total care for the rest of their life. So again, it's one of the things that we kind of have to, have to pay attention to and extremely difficult to get an IQ rating on someone because again, if I'm having trouble even feeding myself, and imagine the communication problems that go along with that too. How are you going to assess someone's IQ? I mean, realistically. Some causal factors. What causes intellectual disability? Well, sort of biological influences, possibly heredity. Maybe some kind of genetic you know, difficulty that gets passed on. Alterations of embryonic development. So again, during prenatal development, especially during the embryonic stage, maybe some kind of insult to the developmental pattern. Pregnancy or perinatal problems. So again, maybe problems around the pregnancy, maybe during the delivery process, maybe the cord was wrapped around this individual's you know, head, they got some um, oxygen deficiency and then they end up with some maybe brain damage as a result of that which then impacts their intellectual functioning. We also see maybe because of acquired medical conditions. So again, some kind of acquired medical condition has changed them from their potential what they could be. We know there's some environmental influences. Did the person get access to, I don't know, lead paint? You know, was there some toxin that they came in contact with. And notice, in 30 to 40% of the cases, 
there's no specific cause that we can identify. So that's not a majority, but in a large minority of the cases, we just don't know what happened. Some other kinds of factors, if we're talking about heredity, we can talk about you know, recessive inherited conditions, things like PKU, fragile X syndrome, uh, galactosemia, um, and then Tay-Sachs disease. So again, these are just some of the illnesses that a person could, again, suffer from, right? Tuberous uh, cirrhosis, which is another kind of dominant inherited condition. So again, if this is present in your genetic makeup and it's dominant, you don't have to have it on both genes, just one gene and it's gonna show itself. Remember that a recessive genes, if it's on the recessive end, as long as there's a dominant gene to override it, it doesn't show itself. It's only if two recessive genes are present that it shows itself. So again, your book talks about some of these conditions in a little bit more in depth. For time's sake, I'll, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna do that in this class, but again, you can look these up if you wanna know more about them. Some other factors, alterations of embryonic development, Down syndrome. So again, Down syndrome. Now, Down syndrome specifically is it mental retardation or intellectual disability, but it does oftentimes result in some intellectual challenges. So that's one of the things to, to consider. It's called trisomy uh, 21 because it has to do with the, to the 21st chromosome pair. Um, and then al fetal alcohol syndrome can be another factor. And again, that's an avoidable one, often caused by mother's use of alcohol during the developmental period, right? Two other ones, again, uh, cretinism, which has to do with uh, um, this uh, substance, I can't think what it is right off the bat, um, cretin, um, creatine, I believe so, yeah, right? That's what it's related to, creatine, so. And then prematurity, that's another one, because again, maybe the person didn't fully develop before they were delivered, and so what are the intellectual you know, deficits as a result of not being fully developed when they were delivered. So there's a lot of factors that can come into play. Some acquired medical conditions could include things like head trauma, brain tumors, epilepsy, shaken baby syndrome that doesn't result in death but does result in uh, bruising of the brain and damage to the brain, lead poisoning, hydrocephaly, which has to do with a pressure building up in the brain itself, pushing the brain tissue against the wall of the skull, and then what has to happen is surgery to usually reduce the pressure. What's that? Yeah, sometimes a shunt, right, to again reduce the pressure. Um, and then two other ones is encephalitis and meningitis. So again, some other medical conditions that can occur. So there is a physical cause for these. It's one of the things to keep in mind. Some environmental factors, maybe, maybe even as easy as, and I don't say easy, but Extreme deprivation and isolation. Remember our case of Jeannie that you might have heard of in Psych 101, right? Jeannie, the case of child abuse where the young girl was ignored for the first 13 years of her life by her parents. And when she was discovered and they worked with her, she acquired some skills, but she was still incredibly limited in her intellectual functioning because for 13 years she had been ignored and abused, neglected, essentially. Um, inadequate intellectual stimulation. So you're not getting the stimulation as a child that you should. It doesn't cause the neural patterns to 
kind of get solidified the way they need to be, and then that can cause lifelong challenges. I would argue that this inadequate intellectual stimulation probably falls more in the mild category. Just throwing it out there. And then quality of parental interaction. So even parental interaction can have an impact on functioning. What about prevention while well, family planning, uh, maternal health and age, assessing that. We know that if the mother's over the age of 40, for example, there's a much higher likelihood of Down syndrome in the offspring. So we take a look at that. I, excuse my, my analogy for this, but keep in mind that women are born with all of the eggs at time of birth that they're gonna have in their life. They're already in the ovaries. What happens is at puberty, the eggs start to mature. Prior to that, they're immature. But around puberty, the eggs start to mature and then they're released, right, from alternate ovaries pretty much every month is what you see. So think about a woman who's 40 years old. And, and I hate that maybe this isn't the best analogy, but she's got old eggs. Those eggs have been in her ovaries for 40 plus years. So is there a higher likelihood of abnormalities developing? And I think it makes sense to say yes. What we know is if males father a child after the age of 45, dig this, there's a higher likelihood of schizophrenia. So while males produce sperm on a regular basis throughout their lifespan, maybe just the process of producing sperm creates its own abnormalities later on as we get older. We don't produce as strong a sperm. Think about that. So I just throw that out there. Again, maybe not a great analogy, but hopefully one that maybe is helpful. Um, early intervention programs, stimulating early childhood environment, parental education, Head Start seems to assist people who have inadequate stimulation, you know, intellectual stimulation in their environment. Head Start is an opportunity to allow them to have more stimulation at a younger age. Some other treatments, residential living facilities, sometimes people end up in those, even as kids. And then structured behavior modification programs. And it says psycho psychopharmacology treatments. If there is some medication, again, oftentimes the medication is to help with impulse control and with depression and anxiety. Imagine if you couldn't communicate and function with the world around you. That would upset you. So sometimes the medications are more to treat those symptoms of being upset than it is to really treat other things. So just throwing that in there. Motor disorders, let's talk about some of these, the tick disorders, right? Ticks are sudden stereotyped motor movements or vocalizations that are rapid, recurrent, non-rhythmic, and experienced as being irresistible. I have a video, I don't oftentimes show it because it's 20 minutes long, but it's a young kid who has Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's syndrome is multiple tics um, along with um, coparelia, which is the shouting of verbal obscenities. And he's a teenager. And it's kind of interesting because he talks about the fact that he can try to control his tics to a point, but at some point they become so overwhelming that if he tries to control them too far, then they start coming out in a wild way. Does that make sense? So he almost lets them out 
as they come up so they don't build up. So in some ways he has a little bit more control over them, but he, he talks about how difficult it is, he's a teenager, to date, to hang out with friends. He goes, you know, my friends don't ask me to go to the movies with them. I understand why. He goes, nobody wants someone during the movie ticking and shouting out ver verbal you know, comments. I can't control myself. So I don't blame them for not asking me to go to the movies with them. But if you look at his eyes when he's talking about it, he's sad. Yeah, he just wants to be normal. That's all he wants, whatever normal is. That's all he wants. So it can be devastating. If it's a simple motor tick, a blinking, a grimace, it's less impactful. Of course, the more impactful, the more devastating to the person. There's complex motor, motor tics. They might be hand gestures or twirling behaviors that, they, that kids do, or sometimes we see this in kids, and sometimes people grow out of it, sometimes they do not. Again, sometimes it could be transient, temporary for just a year and then seem to go away. Other times it seems to be more chronic. There's simple verbal tics, clearing of the throat. <clears throat> you know, someone that just always seems to clear the throat and you go, well, that's just normal. No, no, this is a little bit more, a little odder than that, right? Maybe some grunting. I had a friend in, uh, that I worked with that worked in a mental health facility with me and he had a tick, right? And he would, he would do that throat clearing. <clears throat> you know, you could, you, could, you could pick it up. And I, and I you know, I, I knew him, he was a great guy. He had that, he found a way to just cope with it and make his way through, right? So, but again, it was more of a simple tick. It wasn't more of the complex ones. Complex verbal tics might include things like words and phrases. And again, this idea of coparelia, which is the you know, shouting of verbal obscenities or socially inappropriate comments, right? That's the other thing, yeah. Just shout out words and then try to pull it back together again. Yeah, and again, you know, these are impactful in social situations, maybe not intellectually functioning. Again, it's separate than that. These are motor behaviors, but they can cause difficulty. Yeah. And do most people that have simple verbal tics, do they all, are they all aware that they have it? Most people are aware that they have it, but they can't control it. Or if they try to control it, it becomes irresistible to a point. Yeah, my, my coworker that I worked with, I noticed that during times of high stress, he seemed to not be able to control it quite as much. It, would take, it takes energy, effort. You know, imagine if you had an itch, okay? So you have an itch and you're trying not to itch it. What happens over time? It gets worse. It gets worse and that itch almost becomes irresistible, right? You're like, oh, I know I shouldn't scratch this. Maybe you have poison ivy. Maybe you have a rash, right? You're like, oh, I shouldn't scratch this. It's going to make it worse. And yet, at some point, you just go crazy. You start scratching everywhere. And then you're like, ah, right? So imagine the same kind of thing. Imagine having this impulse that you just can't control. Yeah, question. Um, just a comment. Um, when I was like going to church and stuff, like one of the bishops, he had a tick. And like he used to curse and stuff. So changed it, almost a replacement, mm -hmm. right? Can't stop the tick. But it was better because right. he was like right. preaching Right, because during a preacher, you really don't want to be shouting some obscenities. Yeah. Probably not a good idea, right? But again, that, and that shows there's, there's a little bit of control there. 
but it's 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 fleeting. You know, it doesn't always it's not always there. So the DSM-5 includes four disorders involving either verbal tics, motor tics, or a combination. Tourette's tends to be the most severe. Then we have persistent chronic motor tic, persistent chronic vocal tic, and then provisional tic disorder. Provisional means more temporary, right? But the most severe is Tourette's because it includes both verbal and motor. So think about the double whammy, if you will. Autism spectrum disorder, this is that big category, right? So we're making our way through, we're doing okay, we're getting there. So DSM-5, um, what we did was we took four of DSM-4's pervasive developmental disorders, that's what we used to call them, pervasive developmental disorders, and autism was one of them. Now we call them neurodevelopmental disorders. They're still pervasive, they're still more long-term, but neurodevelopmental makes more logical sense when we're describing them, right? So pervasive developmental disorders, four of them were combined into this autism spectrum disorder. And here's the four. Autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, childhood disintegrative disorder, and pervasive developmental disorder. So we kind of combined all four of those. Now, Rett's disorder also used to be in the persistent developmental disorder category, but remember, we got rid of Rett's disorder because it's so rare. But it could have been put in here. Instead, because of its rareness, it was removed. So again, all of these, when we see the numbers of autism seeming to increase, some of it has to do with the combination of adding all these categories together. I'm just letting you know. There are some distinctions between the former DSM-4 pervasive developmental disorders that are now considered differences in severity of the same core symptoms. So here they are. There's deficits in social communication and interaction and restrictive repetitive behaviors. And those were true in childhood disintegrative disorder. That was true in pervasive developmental disorder in Asperger's and in autism spectrum or autism, autistic disorders, that's why all four were brought together. That they were more similar than they were different, it didn't make sense to separate them. But I'll tell you, people with Asperger's got really pissed off about it. Because Asperger's was always seen as being a higher level of autism. Asperger's disorder are people who don't have intellectual disability. They can be very brilliant, they just don't have the social skills. Uh, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft, um, is said to have suffered from Asperger's disorder. And he's one of the richest men in the world. Brilliant. And yet social interactions seem to lack. So it's, again, doesn't mean you can't be successful. So now that they're being put in this autism spectrum disorder, there's more of a connotation of severity that goes with that, and I think that's why people with Asperger's get a little bit pissed off. Leo Cantor, or in, in the 1950s, identified a group of disorders which later became known as autism. Around the same time, a guy named Asperger's identified similar symptoms in a group of people he was working with, but they weren't as severe. So Canner got the diagnosis of autistic disorder, but Asperger's was kind of ignored. In the 1990s, 
some researchers said, you know what, I think there's something different about Asperger's. That's why Asperger's was brought out as a separate, a separate category in DSM-4 and 4TR. But then in 2013, it was you know, brought back under the, this umbrella. And again, that's where the resistance has been. Just sharing that little bit of history. All right, autism spectrum disorder involves problems in social interaction, communication, or play. Socially, there's little reciprocal interaction. In other words, what does that mean? That means you try to talk to an autistic kid, someone in the autism spectrum disorder, they, it's almost like you're talking to the wall. Sometimes they don't respond. There's not a reciprocal interaction. You talk with them, but they don't seem to, it's almost like they're looking straight through you sometimes. So that's what we see. Notice language is usually delayed or absent. When it is present, it often seems abnormal in pitch, tone, or rhythm. The range of interests and activities is very narrow. They tend to be very rigid with schedules, with specifics. Um, I once had in this class, I had a student um, do a paper on autism spectrum uh, disorders. And um, they had a daughter who was six and a half who suffered from autism. Um, who had, at six and a half, did not speak yet, had not uh, successfully been potty trained. Um, and she decided, with her husband's help, to bring their daughter in as to, for the class, not to make fun of her, but to, to give the people an idea, but was incredibly concerned, even though it was a small class of about 10, 10 students, incredibly concerned that it would be overwhelming, and because it was out of the routine, wasn't sure how the daughter would respond because the daughter sometimes responded by hitting, striking out, biting, screaming in a piercing way. Again, couldn't communicate, but those are indications that the person's feeling overwhelmed. And so wasn't sure. So she did bring her daughter in. Her daughter was very stereotypic movement, repetitive behaviors, um, a little bit of grunting, wandered around the classroom uh, while her mom presented. Um, needed a little bit of redirection, um, functioned okay, actually survived, you know, or I didn't mean survived, but, you know, fared pretty well considering the stress of the situation. But I think, again, being in a smaller class was probably a huge benefit. So, again, this is some of the stuff we see. Remember that stereotypic movements means they tend to do, like, almost ritualistic kinds of behaviors, and that's what we see. Almost feels a little bit like a tick. You know, like a tick disorder, a stereotypic movement, but it's it's more than that. Yeah. My adopted sibling, he is, has autism spectrum disorder, and with the range of interests, activities narrow, and like he seriously about routine, you can tell him go play. He will sit on the porch and wait for you to specifically say go play basketball. He'll okay, go get a ball then go play basketball. Mm -hmm. He'll play basketball for a few minutes, he'll come back and he'll sit until you literally give him step-by-step -step instructions right. on what to do next because he right. can't put it together right. himself. And, and that's, imagine that someone with autism is almost trapped in their own head. Yeah. And so they're so trapped in their own head. It's almost like to focus on the outside world is overstimulating so they shut down. And that's what you sometimes see. So thanks for sharing that, yeah. Again, it, it, it's, it's a challenge, it really is, right? Um, 
People with autism spectrum disorder may have particularly strong abilities in a very narrow area. We call it almost like a savant kind of skill set. So they're really good at maybe one or two things, but they're not good in other things. Again, but notice that savant syndrome is really only present in about 10% of cases. So majority don't have even that strength. And I call that a strength. Being able to, to hyper-focus on a specific area, that's a strength, right? Because again, um, there was a special, it was like a 2020 special. It was an individual with autism, They're, and they were, an old, they were older, they were in their 20s, and their parents were still around, their parents were taking care of them. But this was a, an individual who could hear, you, you could say, I want you to play crazy little thing called love in a classical pattern. And they were so in tuned with music, they could do that, right? They could change the genre and, and come up with a different kind of outcome of music and, and appropriate, like very appropriate. And so the parents were being interviewed and they said, look, he's never gonna be able to live on his own, but he's got this skill set that's going to make him money in order for him to be able to pay for the help he needs when we're not here. But again, that savant skill set is only 10% of the cases. So something to think about. And again, the, <coughs> excuse me, the, the evidence of exceptional skills are usually in things like mathematics, music, drawing, calculation of dates, uh, mechanical aptitude, or even memory, right? Again, though, a vast majority don't show that skill set. What are some of the potential causes for autism spectrum disorders? Well, again, here are the, here are the list. Um, you'll see this last one down here. Um, <coughs> I'm a little cautious, excuse me, I don't know where this cough's coming from. I'm a little cautious about having it on the list because I don't want people to misinterpret, but we'll talk a little bit about it, right? So heredity is the first one. We'll talk about neurological factors, social, psychosocial factors, and notice the last one on the list is vaccines. There was a large belief that vaccines caused autism. We do not believe that today. All right, so let's go ahead and take a look, right? We're gonna talk a little bit more about this vaccines, right? Several studies have examined the possibilities that an increase in autism spectrum disorders over the past 25 years could be due to an increased use of medical vaccinations like the MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. To date, I'll be specific, and this started in the 1990s. To date, studies have not found any evidence that vaccinations cause autism, or even this idea of mercury exposure. There was this idea that there were trace amounts of mercury. That's what was triggering this to occur. Even that doesn't seem to be there. In fact, the original study that was published in Europe in 1990s that said that is no longer in the journals. It has been removed because of methodological concerns that we can't replicate that study. There's some question about whether it was ethically done to begin with, and there's some question about who funded the research. So I'm gonna let you know. Now the researcher who did that original study stands by his work. And there are organizations in the world who say it's a giant world conspiracy. But I'm going to tell you, if there was any evidence 
that vaccinations were related, we would know it by now. I would think so. Just throwing it out there. All right. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Let's talk a little bit about those. All right. We're again about slide 28. We've got 10 slides left. We're going to be close. Right. So let's see how far we go. Might have to run a little over. If you got to run, it's okay. I just want to get the recording in. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, prominent symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, or a combination. Right. Notice it says at least some of the symptoms have caused severe impairment before the age of 12. They must be present in at least two settings. It can't just be that they act impulsively or inattentively at school, but at home and everywhere else they're fine because that could be caused by a learning disability. So it's got to be in two or more settings. That's the key. Usually it's not diagnosed until after the age of five because parents don't see it in the second setting. You see it at home, now they're at school. Now is some of it they haven't learned to control their motor behaviors yet, right? Is some of it because kids are full of energy and they haven't learned to sit still yet? Could it be neurologically caused? Maybe, but it's gotta be more than that. Again, in more than one setting, right? Um, notice it has to interfere with academic, occupational, or social functioning. And notice ADHD is the leading source of referrals for youth to mental health care facilities. Now, some people would say that we overdiagnose ADHD because if a kid doesn't sit still in school, we automatically want to assume that they have this and we want to medicate them to comply. That's a big concern. It's a big question. I'm going to tell you that I worked with kids who truly had ADHD and medication did help them function. Now, that didn't mean that they stayed on medication for the rest of their life. I have seen kids grow, you know, as they go through puberty, I'm putting quotes around this, kind of grow out of. I'm going to tell you they probably still have ADHD symptoms but they found better coping strategies to deal with it. Does that make sense? They found ways, non-medication, behavioral ways, to maintain their focus and to make things work. So that's really the goal. I'm a big believer in looking for behavioral interventions first, then medication, or medication to supplement behavioral interventions so that the person doesn't always have to be on meds for the rest of their life. So I'm just throwing that out there. All right. Um, yeah, question. My nephew actually has ADHD so severely that when we got him on medication, he did a total 180, and the doctor actually had him do several different consults just to like, as like an educational training because his ADHD hyperactivity was so bad. And then once he got on medication, the doctor was like, you know, we really should use you as the poster child for the for Adderall because it it's like night and day. It's right. so now bad. could it be that whatever triggered that to begin with, could it be that with medication and then with puberty that right. their body realigns and they might not need it in the future? It's possible. Okay. We we you know, do we want to take that chance? Oftentimes we don't. Some parents will do this, they'll keep their kids on medication during the school year. 
and then they'll give them a medication vacation over the summer because then they don't have to be as controlled in their behavior. And I would argue that in those kind of settings, you have a better assessment of whether your child's gonna be able to go off of medication or not as they get older. Does that kind of make sense? So again, you'll sometimes see that in parents. Sometimes they'll do that. Yeah. So could possibly ADHD trigger anxiety? I think it can because again, the person becomes anxious that they can't accomplish what they want to. They become easily frustrated and then they shut down or they, you know, so I think that that can happen. Did you notice in, in your, is a brother? Did you notice? Your nephew, did you notice if suffered from anxiety related to not being able to kind of meet the standards in school or not really seem to be oblivious from it? Uh, I think he was just anxious all around. But okay. I think it was really because he, could, he knew he couldn't focus on any. I mean, he's eight. He's right. Now. Right. So he doesn't fully understand what's going on with him anyway. He just knows that he has issues with being able to sit still and he's bouncing all over the place, even though he's on medication and it's completely night and day right it would like right now they said that his his managed adhd now is that of like someone that has mild adhd right right so, so and again eight years old so i would say chelsea that maybe some of that has to do too with at what age the person is so how much anxiety is it causing if i'm 18 and i can't focus and meet the expectations of high school might be much different you know what I mean? More anxiety. Because I know I want to perform well, and I'm very frustrated with not being able to. Right. Question. So, okay, so I do have ADHD. Um, my dad has the um, quote-unquote ADD, and he has taken um, the medication, and he has gotten off of it because he has learned the coping skills. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I was younger, like, they'd be like, oh, did you take your meds today? And because, like, Adderall is kind of like those weird ones where you can – not take it for a while but it's and they'll know because um they're like oh did you take your meds like i can tell because you're so like bouncing off the walls right. and you're like everywhere and then they're like you should go take your meds because like on the weekends they'd be like all right you can stop but like weekdays you have to right so. right and what about now can i ask are you on medication I today i am um, okay. i'm on a different medication because okay. um it got to the point where my tolerance was so high to Adderall that um, I had the highest dosage, and they were like, all right, well, we have to switch you off. Right. So now I'm on Stratera, okay. and that doesn't have a choice. Okay. Like, I don't have a choice whether or not to get off of it or right. not. Because um, you have to, like, wean yourself on. Right. And if I don't take it, I get migraines. Okay. And it hurts. So there's some side effects of, of not taking yeah. the medication. So um, I still am on it just because I'm in college, and it helps helps you stay focused yeah. okay well that's good and then maybe at some point again and it's interesting because hormonal changes puberty changes hell we could even talk about you know change of life in the climactic even later in life you know you go through menopause things like that may even change things so a lot of it can be it depends on the cause again right if it's hormonally induced maybe that's part of it So what is the treatment for ADHD? Well, the treatment tends to be stimulant medication, right? Things like Ritalin, for example. They've been shown to reduce the symptoms of ADHD in the short term and are about as effective in in about 70% of children compared to 10% for placebo. So there's obviously something 
that the medication is doing, right? Notice it says, while useful in the short term, medications do not appear to have long-term effectiveness and may stunt growth. That's always one of the side effects. Again, there's always a trade-off. Um, so long-term, is it going to realign your, you know, your body's you know, uh, uh, neural connections? No, it's not. As long as you take the med, great. You're gonna see some kind of result from it. The minute that you go off of it, the symptoms return. So that's why they say it's not a long-term cure. I mean, you can be on it long-term, but it's not really a long-term cure. You're really just treating the symptoms. If we can figure out a way to treat the cause, it'd be much more successful, right? The American Psychological Association's Task Force on Pharmacological, Psychosocial, and Combined Interventions for Childhood Disorders, after weighing the risk and benefits of effective treatment for ADHD, recommend that children should first receive a trial psychosocial intervention for ADHD before medication. So they, even the APA suggests that maybe let's try some behavioral intervention first. While we might have a tendency to go for meds first, hold off just a little bit longer and see if there's something else that can be done. And if there isn't, then go with medication if nothing else seems to be working you know, work. Because again, it's not a long-term cure. It's more a maintenance kind of thing. So that's part of the, the initial reason for that. So the last category, and we're kind of out of time, but we've got a few slides. You guys willing to stick around a little bit? If you've got to go to another class, I understand. I'm just going to keep going if that's all right, because then we'll have the full recording. So conduct disorders. These are disruptive impulse control and conduct disorders. These are the category in DSM-5. And there's only a few um, diagnoses in here. These are conditions that involve behavior that tends to bring a person into conflict with authority, often shown as impulsive or poorly controlled violations of social rules. So we're gonna have differing degrees, right? Like neurodevelopmental disorders, they are all more common in males than females. It's this whole category, everything we're talking today, tends to be more common in males than females. And included in this section, double listed, is antisocial personality disorder. But again, more of a childhood version. So antisocial personality disorder is a personality disorder, but it's a violation of rules. It's a disruptive behavior disorder also. Does that kind of make sense? Kind of falls in both categories. So let's take a look at it. Here are our list, right? Oppositional defiant disorder. What do we see? Angry behavior for at least six months. Right, so acting out behavior, you know, always challenging the authority or parents in all ways. Conduct disorder, persistent violations of social norms and rules must be present for at least 12 months. Here's the way this is. This is the best description I can give you. Oppositional defiant disorder is the barking dog. It's the barking dog, the one that when you walk by that house, it comes running out in the yard, and it barks at you, but it never bites you. It just gets right to the property edge. It pushes the envelope. Annoying as hell, right? But doesn't violate the rules. Conduct disorder is the attacking dog. That's the one who will chase you down the street. It'll chase you through the house. If you don't get in your house fast enough, it's going to bite you. You're going to get hurt from it. Does that make sense? So conduct disorder, you're going to see more violation of rules, breaking of law, you know, more bullying types of behavior, 
and dig this. Conduct disorders as a group, some go away and some remain. All antisocials, if you are labeled with antisocial you know, personality disorder, then you had to have met the criteria for conduct disorder prior to the age of 15. So all antisocials were conduct disorders at one time. Not all conduct disorders turn into antisocials. Does that kind of make sense? So maybe you acted out in your teenage years, but then you got yourself together. You're not antisocial today, but you had that tendency. But through intervention, it didn't come out. Maybe you had a conduct disorder, but you never changed. And now as an adult, you're showing antisocial personality disorder. So again, think of it that way. Intermittent explosive disorder, that's another one in here. Remember, these are disruptive and impulse control and conduct disorders. So intermittent explosive disorder is recurrent impulsive aggressive outbursts. Notice the duration has to be 12 months with an onset after age five, because prior to age five, it's just maybe a temper tantrum. By age five, you should have mastered control of this, right? Antisocial personality disorder, again, we talked about in the personality disorder chapter, but I just gave you the link of why it's here. Pervasive violation of rights of others, onset by age 15, current age at least 18. So again, you're seeing those signs of conduct disorder early on, and then after 18, we, we give you the diagnosis of personality disorder. Pyromania. So recurrent fire setting, again, an impulsive type of disorder. So that's one of the things we see. Kleptomania, uncontrolled stealing behavior, right? Recurrent impulsive theft. The example I usually use for kleptomania, Renota Ryder, is that sometimes people like Renota Ryder will actually get in trouble for stealing things, Renota Ryder, when they actually have money, Renota Ryder, that they could afford to buy the stuff normally, Renota Ryder. So the only reason why I pick on her is because she was busted for shoplifting. She is a movie star, has tons of money, had money in her pocket to pay for whatever it was that she took, but she claims she had kleptomania, Renata Ryder, instead of like owning responsibility for her behavior. Now maybe she does, or maybe she doesn't. Just throwing it out there. But kleptomaniacs will steal like one shoe, not both. And, and they don't even necessarily keep it. It's the rush of taking it. The impulsive, I can't stop myself from taking it. So again, something to think about. Notice the last one, kleptomania, the only one that we've talked about today that's more common in females than males. Renona Ryder, just throwing it out there. I'll probably get in trouble someday for saying that. So let's look at oppositional defined disorder. Let's make our way through these last five slides. Uh, distinguishing feature of oppositional defined disorder, recurrent disobedience and hostility towards authority figures. So diagnostic criteria also includes um, often losing one's temper, blaming others for one's own mistakes or misbehavior, being easily annoyed. The diagnosis requires the presence, um, the weekly presence of at least four symptoms for a period of at least six months. If the person is under the age of five, then the symptoms are required to be nearly every day. Because again, maybe it's just a temporary temper tantrum. Do four-year-olds act out sometimes? Oh yeah, right? 
the terrible threes, terrible twos, you know? Again, we see that, right? So some of that's expected. Now, if it's every single damn day they're oppositional, that seems to lead itself to, to lean more towards this. And they're just, you know, every once in a while act out. As soon as we get to age five, by now I should have regulated my emotions enough to be able to control this. But obviously I can't. So that's where it comes into play. All right? The severity of oppositional defiant disorder can be specified as mild, moderate, or severe. Mild meaning occurring only in one setting. Maybe it only happens at school. Moderate means it's happening in two settings, at home and school, and severe being happens in three or more settings. Again, church, home, school, no matter where you're at, you're always oppositional. Usually the onset is before the age of eight, commonly precedes, commonly precedes the development of conduct disorder, but not always. Just because you're oppositional does not mean you're gonna be a conduct disorder. There is a line there between being the, the barking dog and being the attacking dog. So just think that, right? And notice that this disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, is strongly comorbid with both ADHD and you know, conduct disorder. If you have conduct disorder, you tend to also have oppositional defiant disorder. But again, just because you have oppositional defiant disorder doesn't mean you're gonna develop conduct disorder. But they are linked. Um, conduct disorder involves repetitive, persistent violation of rules, socially uh, uh, inappropriate uh, violation of norms. So again, you've got social norms and you violate those. <coughs> Excuse me. And violation of the rights of others. Often taking the form of aggression, damage to property, deceitfulness, theft, and serious rule violations. This is the person that's getting in trouble. This is the person more than likely going to go to a detention center, right? They're actually acting out on their hostility. Think of it that way. The pattern is usually evident in a variety of settings over a 12-month period, and it must cause serious impairment in academic, occupational, and social functioning. And conduct disorder may be diagnosed in adults, but only in the absence of adult antisocial uh, personality disorder. So maybe someone acts out conduct disorder, but they don't quite meet the criteria for antisocial personality disorder, but they continue to be a conduct disorder into adulthood. So again, maybe a more mild version of antisocial. They don't see the whole world. They only have violations in certain areas, maybe only one setting. So something to think about. The prognosis appears poorer in childhood onset uh, than in adolescent onset. Childhood onset means that it started at a younger age. So the younger that conduct disorder starts, the more severe it tends to be, the more problematic it tends to be. Notice it says here, and it also, the prognosis appears poor if you have this with limited pro-social emotions. In other words, you don't show empathy. You don't feel, show sympathy for people. You don't feel bad when other people get hurt. That's pro-social. The condition commonly occurs with ADHD and is associated with mood disorders, anxiety disorders, learning disorders, substance use disorders, so their conduct is acting out in multiple settings. The incidence appears to have increased in the last few decades, might be as high as 10% of the general population 
although right now estimates are about 4%. But maybe a lot of people are just getting away with it and we're not seeing them. Maybe they join gangs or they never end up with the law. Just pushing the envelope just enough. Some possible causal factors. It tends to run in families, conduct disorder. It's more likely when the parents or siblings have antisocial personality disorder. So some of it could be learned, a learned pattern of dealing with the world. Um, it's also uh, tends to be higher, more likely when parents or siblings have conduct disorder, substance use disorder, mood disorders, or ADHD. Again, it's that link. Other predisposing factors include parental rejection or neglect, harsh discipline, physical or sexual abuse, lack of supervision, peer rejection, below normal IQ, and early institutional living. So again, this is what I'm trying to get at. Just because, okay, oppositional defiant disorder maybe leads to conduct disorder. You start acting out. But with the right set of interventions, that doesn't mean you have to be antisocial. But look at this. If there's harsh punishment and you're the victim of physical or sexual abuse by your parents and all these things, imagine the anger that you're developing towards the world as that happens. No wonder you see acting out behavior. If we can intervene and we show the world's not as nasty as it's been to you, the future's not potentially as nasty, maybe you can cope better and antisocial personality disorder doesn't develop. So again, think of it that way. Notice that there are some genetic and environmental factors. Could it be passed through the genes? This tendency to to this tendency to be disobedient with authority. Could that be passed genetically? What do you think? We do believe so. Yeah, traditionalism is a, is a personality trait that does seem to be um, heredity-based, and that is the, your willingness to follow authority figure. So again, there could be some genetics here. And definitely learned environment. Definitely learned environment. Final slide is this one, and this is just some videos for you to take a look at to kind of Go a little further. If you want to know more about learning disabilities, we didn't really talk about them other than just identify the category. Um, There's some videos on that. If you want to know more about the autism spectrum disorders, including Asperger's disorder, again, your book goes way more in depth. We have limited time, so I just did more of an overview. But there's a video that you can check out online. Um, what is oppositional defiant disorder? Another video you can check out. And then finally, the last one, what is conduct disorder? So take a look. If you have any questions, make sure that you let me know. Does that sound good? All right. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it.